Father, please help us to be especially in tune to you just now as we think about uh, what happened at the tree. And as we ask the question, what is sin? Help us um, to clarify some of these answers in our mind and help us also to understand how you are the remedy to the sin problem. Amen. I think so much of this uh, should appeal to those of us in the medical field uh, just because, uh, for example, here we ask, what is the sin problem? Well, you know in medicine that uh, if you have not made the right diagnosis of the problem for your patient, that your treatment uh, will not work unless your diagnosis is correct. All right, so as we understand what's the remedy for the sin problem, it uh, makes a lot of sense to understand, well, in its essence, what is sin? And how did the death of Jesus, how is that involved in fixing the sin problem? And so uh, at the tree, we see, of course, how this sin, this infection, if we want to call it that, how it spread to planet Earth and humanity. So this is really, the, uh, I think, the best example in the Bible uh, to understand what really happened. So we kind of touched on this last time, where we, uh, for the first-year students who had tests last week, um, we talked about this war in heaven and how the creation story really needs to be understood in the setting of a cosmic conflict. And uh, so in Genesis 2.16, we read that in the middle of the garden stood the tree that gives life and the tree that gives knowledge of what is good and what is bad. And God would say, you may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden except the tree that gives knowledge of what is good and what is bad. You must not eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you will die the same day, as the Good News Bible puts it, or you will surely die. Now, if you were going to put a tree in the garden, uh, why in the middle of the garden? Why not in the far back corner, far, far away? They'd have to travel for months and months to get there, right in the middle of the garden. And um, I'm, maybe this isn't a good illustration, but I've kind of imagined it this way. Imagine that uh, you're adopting two children, maybe nine and ten, boy and girl. And uh, you know that they're coming for months, and so you've fixed up the house, the yard, there's a swing set in the back, uh, maybe you bought a new puppy, you try to do everything, kind of a, a paralleling here with God creating this wonderful garden, and then creating Adam and Eve. Would it be kind of unusual after spending the whole day showing these two children the wonderful place, and by the way, there's one tree in the back. If you eat the fruit of that tree, you will die. Uh, would it be kind of shocking? Uh, what's, what's the need for having a tree that uh, eat the fruit and you will die? And we said last time that so many things in the Bible are dependent on incorporating this war in heaven that has gone on for such a long period of time between God, Christ, and Satan. And here's a good example of how incorporating that view is so important that we see Eden in the setting of a cosmic conflict. And if we want to consider it that way, well, maybe way back here uh, in the forest, uh, there is something brewing. And stay away from that tree. And so how do we see the tree? Well, one, if we don't incorporate a cosmic conflict, then the only way that I could understand the tree is it was just a test of their obe obedience. God wanted to see. Will you obey? Don't go to the tree. Okay, another way of viewing the tree is... Um, here, well, we have Satan involved in this controversy with God. And do we see Satan chasing them around the garden? You know, hiding behind a bush. Psst, Eve, come on, let me tell you something. Now, do we only see the encounter between Eve, in this case, and Satan at the tree? Had to go to the tree 
to encounter Satan. So in a sense, we could see the tree as a protection. It was the only place they could go to encounter the adversary. And so I'd rather see it uh, perhaps in that light. And just as supported that, going back to this verse we read last time in Revelation 12, War in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And I just want to emphasize here who fought back with his angels. Okay, he wasn't alone in this. But the dragon was defeated and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. The huge dragon was thrown out. That ancient serpent... Again, is this not a direct allusion to the ancient serpent that was in the garden, named the devil or Satan, that deceived the whole world? He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. And we read a few verses earlier on that it was a third of the stars that were pulled down here by Satan. All right, so there was quite a conflict, an angelic conflict going on. And apparently, uh, Satan uh, had a lot of people that uh, followed uh, his side. And even the loyal angels, as we read on in the New Testament, it would seem that they are um, also being progressively settled into the truth about God. In fact, we read in Ephesians 9 that God, who is the creator of all things, kept his secret hidden through the past ages in order that at the present time, by means of the church, the angelic rulers and powers in the heavenly world might learn of his wisdom in its different forms. We don't very often consider the loyal angels learning something by the experience of planet Earth, but in fact we are a spectacle for the whole world of angels. Literally, we are a theater for the whole world of angels. And even the good news in 1 Corinthians is referred to as something which even the angels would like to understand. And so when we consider why didn't God deal differently with this conflict, and we imagine a split in the angelic population, you know, if you're a loyal angel and you're not sure what's, what's this, all this about, there's this rebellion, and just imagine that God had said, well, Satan, you and your followers, I'm going to put you billions of light years away, furthest planet, you can do whatever you want there, we'll never see from you again. Uh, but how would that be perceived by the loyal angels? Well, my goodness, certainly not a God of freedom. I guess you step out of line, you're banished. And so I think God gave Satan access to the tree, and he gave Adam and Eve the most severe warning don't go to that tree, but they had freedom. Satan had freedom to be there. Adam and Eve had freedom, if they disobeyed God, to go to the tree and to hear what Satan had to say. Okay, so we could, again, see the tree, in a sense, as a, a protection in, in light of the conflict that was going on. Now, the other thing I mentioned last time is, what was this war all about? And this is a lot of what I want to try to get to um, today. And we said that the war, that the Greek here for war is polemos, from which we get polemics, the art or practice of argumentation, and we also get politics from this. So this was not a uh, muscle fight, uh, lightning bolts. It was not that kind of a battle. This was a political battle. We think of two candidates running for uh, presidency, for example. And as we so often see, a lot of mudslinging, reputations dragged through the dirt about uh, alleged things that happened in the past. All right, I would see the conflict more along those lines. Okay, so what I want to... Um, of course, I wish we had lots and lots of stories about the, the war in heaven, more details. But I would just say that when Eve confronts Satan at the tree, I think we can pretty well assume that Satan has pretty well refined his uh, very sophisticated means of deception at this point. So I think this gives us pretty good insight into likely what happened in heaven. 
All right, so let's listen to the conversation and see if things jump out at you in terms of uh, what, what's the deception here. Now, the snake was the most cunning or crafty, subtle animal that the Lord God had made. And the snake asked the woman, Did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Now, does anything stand out at you there? What's so bad about that? You can read this in any version. It reads about the same. What is the, what's the suggestion? God is a liar. God, God is a liar, and he's certainly not a God of freedom. It's kind of like, uh, boy, you know, Eve, this might not be true, but I just heard you can't eat any fruit in this garden. Kind of strange. You're not free to eat any fruit in the garden. That's the implication. You can't eat any fruit in this garden. God is not a God of freedom. All right, and uh, now, if you were Eve, if someone had just kind of made that subtle accusation against God, shouldn't she have just been out of there? Right? But instead she lingered on in this conversation. And of course this is a direct contradiction to God's words. You may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, except one. All right? So again, it's a direct contradiction to uh, what God had said. And Eve's response is very interesting. She said, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. And a couple of things that are interesting. One is, uh, did God say, if you touch it, you will die? Uh, no. Now, why did she add that? Um, it's just interesting if, if any of you have had uh, kids, um, five or six-year-olds, often as they're beginning to tell a tale that gets further and further away from reality. They add all these little interesting, spectacular uh, details that become not quite uh, true or believable. And uh, so why did she add that? God didn't say don't touch it. The other thing is uh, her reply here, well, we may eat the fruit from trees in the garden. Uh, again, what is interesting here is uh, just a quote here from uh, a footnote is that there's a notable change between what God had said and what the woman says. God said you may freely eat, eat the fruit of all the trees. But the woman omits the emphatic infinitive, saying simply, we may eat. Her words do not reflect the sense of eating to her heart's content. So she defended God somewhat differently than the way God had expressed it. You may eat the fruit of all the trees in the garden. So the first accusation, again, very, very, very subtle, is God is not a God of freedom. Okay, and I think Satan now senses his opportunity. Here Eve is kind of rambling on. Um, she's engaged in conversation. And so after Eve saying, well, we can't even touch it, then Satan really goes in for the kill. And he replied, that's not true. You will not die. And now is where we really see the attack, which is, what? God is a liar. God lied to you. God is untrustworthy. And just imagine this uh, kind of, uh, you're entertaining these thoughts. Maybe Eve said, well, it's not true what he said. We, we can eat the fruit. But in fact, why did God restrict my freedom to eat any, any fruit in the garden? Why can't I eat the fruit of this tree in the middle of the garden? Hmm, I'm not entirely free, am I? And then the second accusation, well, why would God lie to me? I mean, I won't die? Hmm, I thought God was pretty trustworthy. And so these are kinds of the things that are going through Eve's mind. I mean, it's very uh, sophisticated here, the, uh, the attack. And uh, again, from the Net Bible footnotes, I found this interesting that this was a blatant negation and equal to saying not. 
you will surely die. Or, you will surely die not. Alright, so, very, very blunt. Um, God has lied to you. And then he goes on. It's kind of a three-pronged lie. And he would go on to say, well, God said that because he knows that when you eat it, you will be like God and know what is good and what is bad. And um, here, just, I don't know, so crafty, because the implication here is, well, Eve, you're really not good enough. And if you ate this fruit, then you'd be good enough. And in fact, you'd be like God. And the implication here would be, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he doesn't want you to be at this more elevated status. In fact, God even threatened you with death so that you wouldn't eat this fruit. He just tried to scare you because he knew if you ate this fruit, you would really be at a much higher plane. All right, so kind of, uh, again, maybe she's first thought, uh, well, I guess I'm not good enough, and then maybe there's a little selfishness, a little pride. I can be at this uh, upper level if I would just eat this fruit. Of course, what did God say? He created Adam and Eve and said that they were created in the very image, after the very character of God. He did make them good enough. Okay, so we have this three-pronged lie, and so the suggestion here, I don't know what kind of a fruit it was, but this was not a poisonous apple. Okay, what Adam and Eve ate was a lie about who God is. Okay, they believe the lie that God's not a God of freedom, He's not trustworthy, He's dishonest, He threatens them with death when that's really not the outcome. Okay, so uh, they ate a lie that God was uh, untrustworthy. And the, the natural consequence of that, we just read on. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. And so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And uh, we have a children's book that makes it look like God is chasing them around the, the garden angrily. Where are you? It doesn't say that. Now, did God know where they were? Did He spend an hour looking? Hmm, can't find those guys. Where are they? Uh, you know, didn't He know where they were? Of course He did. Isn't this uh, the least threatening way to come to them? Calls out. Where are you? Okay, and um, so of course the response here, hiding in the bushes, is I heard you were walking in the garden, so I hid, and I was afraid because I was naked. And so we often wonder and ask, where is God? Why doesn't He seem more readily um, available, visible, talk to us? And this dramatic split happened with God, and uh, what you'll notice is every time in the Bible, even when righteous people... Um, confront God in all of His glory, there, there seems to... Um, well, just for example, Isaiah, remember he saw God in all of His glory, and right away he felt uh, guilty. Uh, Daniel, righteous Daniel, remember, just collapsed to the ground, and all of his goodness was undone. Um, Job, remember God declared of Job, a perfect and upright man. And then Job sees God in all of His glory and he repents in dust and ashes. Uh, John walked with Jesus for three and a half years and then in Revelation sees Him in all of His glory and he falls down to the ground and, and feels uh, guilty. So there, there would seem to be some process here where, uh, at least for Adam and Eve, encountering God in all of His glory and in their sinful state uh, where there was fear. And what is really interesting here, what does this mean, uh, I was naked? Remember we read that the, uh, the serpent was the most subtle or crafty uh, animal that God had made. And the word naked, can you just see the similarities here in the Hebrew? And this is a word play. 
the words here, crafty and naked, are, are very, very uh, close to each other. And some have suggested that when they realized they were naked, what they real, really realized is that they were taking on features of the satanic character. Cunning, crafty, deceptive. And that perhaps this is what made them feel guilty in desiring to hide in a bush rather than to uh, come out and talk with God. So, um, I was going to use an illustration here about um, a church, but I thought of another one. We'll see if this uh, works here. As we try to imagine, what happened perhaps in heaven in the first place? And um, we imagine perhaps it would be just very easy to uh, decide if there's a conflict like this. Well, you decide for God, obviously. But let's just imagine here uh, maybe your favorite teacher uh, here at the School of Medicine, perhaps, who uh, works in the dean's office, someone in power, that you really come to uh, respect this individual. And um, imagine one day uh, you see me, and perhaps uh, you also have a good impression of me because of lectures and stuff, I don't know, but anyway, you just happen to see me and I look really uh, depressed about something. And uh, maybe you come up and say, hey, what's, what's going on? Seems like uh, you're not, uh, not feeling really good today or something. And maybe reluctantly I say, you know, this is, shouldn't really talk about this, but uh, it's a difficult situation. And uh, I just found out that, um, let's call him Dr. Jones, has um, been embezzling money from uh, tuition funds. And I'm just not sure what to do about it. And he was my mentor for years as a medical student and had been my favorite teacher at the time. And uh, now this horrible situation. And uh, in fact, would you join me in praying for Dr. Jones? And let's decide what we can do for Dr. Jones in this situation. And uh, by the way, uh, I should, probably shouldn't have told you, so let's just, let's just keep this quiet and, and we'll pray about maybe what the best thing to do. Now, do you think that word would gradually get out among the classmates? Uh, yeah, it certainly would. And uh, maybe his word got out, maybe Dr. Jones would even get up before all of you and say, you know, this is not true. I don't know how this got started, but it's not true. And uh, so maybe uh, you're the student that talked with me and you come to me and you say, you know what, I talked with Dr. Jones and he said it's not true. And uh, I said, I know. And Dr. Jones is lying. That's what's so difficult about it. And um, so maybe I get up before the class and say, you know, um, uh, I dealt with this inappropriately. I should not have talked with anyone about this. I'm going to try to deal with this privately. And please join me all in prayer in dealing with the situation. And, uh, you know, I give a Bible study. I must be a trustworthy person for, for something like this. And um, so this, this kind of conflict brews, and you wonder who's telling the truth. And just because Dr. Jones got up and said it's not true, would everyone be convinced that it wasn't true? Probably some of you would have doubts. And uh, then you find out a week later that, um, that I've been fired. And uh, now there's a real controversy because uh, this is unjust. What has happened? I mean, this is such a power play that has gone on. And so you wonder who's telling the truth. And um, so I, I imagine it was something like that. And then imagine you got a call from me a week later. Hey, I, I have started up a new medical school. And uh, the, uh, the tuition is half the cost. And, uh, you know, in the School of Medicine, we're much more transparent in this new school. Everything is open, uh, you know. And uh, 20 of your classmates have already agreed to come on over. Uh, you know, I think you can see where the seed of doubt about someone's character uh, could potentially be very, very damaging and could lead to a split. And so as we imagine, why didn't God deal with this situation differently 
force would not have worked. I mean, imagine if God had eliminated Satan. I mean, if you're another angel, how would you feel? You'd feel, boy, I better not step out of line. God will eliminate me too. All right, so uh, you can't deal with a situation like this with force. Uh, what about claims? Well, when Dr. Jones got up and said, I didn't do it, um, some of you would probably still wonder. You wouldn't be 100% convinced. Now, the Bible is full of claims, very good claims. Jesus himself said from the very beginning he was a murderer and has never been on the side of truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he is only doing what is natural to him because he is a liar and the father of all lies. I should have put the translation here which says he is the father of the lie, singular. Um, the lie about who God is. Okay, we have lots of people making claims. When Bill Clinton said, I did not have sex with that woman, did everyone believe? No, there were lots of skeptics. Of course, in this case, it turned out um, that he was lying. Um, but just claims do not settle the issue. And so what really needed, what God really needed ultimately was evidence. Where did God provide the evidence? And ultimately, of course, that was in Jesus Christ. Is God a God of freedom? Well, a God who would limit his own freedom to the point that he'd spend nine months in the womb, okay, that's a God of freedom. Uh, can God be trusted? Um, a God who allows his own children to torture him to death is a God who can be trusted. So the evidence that ultimately won the accusations here that we see in the very beginning were provided in Jesus Christ. That's why we say Satan was defeated at the cross. The lies were defeated. The accusations against God's character. So as we again try to maybe make a medical application to this, and that's what's so nice about uh, so many things here in uh, theology, such natural medical applications. How would you define meningitis? Is it accurate to say meningitis is headache and fever? That's describing the symptoms of meningitis, right? That is not... The best way to say this is what meningitis is, of course, meningitis is an infection, in this case, a bacterial infection that involves the meninges that has symptoms like headache and fever. Okay, well, the, the same thing applies to sin. We, we usually think of sin as breaking the rules. Sin is murder. Sin is lying. Well, those are sinful actions, but that really does not get to the root of what sin is. So there are three key New Testament verses here that help us define what is sin. One of them here in Romans 14, where Paul would say anything that is not based on faith is sin. And in the Greek, there's one Greek word that can be translated trust, faith, believe. And so perhaps the best understanding of this would be anything that's not based on trust is sin. Was there a breakdown of trust between Adam and Eve and God in Eden. Yes, that was ultimately the problem. There was a breakdown in trust. Okay, so to understand what really is sin, it is a breakdown in trust between us, us and God. It is a breakdown in relationship between us and God. That's much more getting at a core issue. And in the sinful actions, well, that's a result of a breakdown in trust with God. So, for example... What is Abraham heralded as? What's so great about Abraham? He trusted God. Here in Genesis 15, Abraham put his trust in the Lord, and because of this, the Lord was pleased with him and accepted him. He trusts me. Okay, we're in relationship. And if you read on to James, Abraham was called a friend of God. Okay, so what ultimately God wants is our trust. If we trust him, we'll be in relationship with him, 
And guess what? The infection of sin uh, begins to uh, be healed in us. Okay, here's probably the one that comes to mind for most people, though. Definition of sin. 1 John 3, 4. Whoever sins is guilty of breaking God's law because sin is a breaking of the law. Now, even though I use the Good News Bible, uh, which I think is a great translation uh, for this Bible study, this is not a good translation of this verse. Okay, and the New King James, in this case, much better. Whoever sins also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness or rebellion in some translations. And if we just look at this uh, Greek word here, nomia is law, anomia is lawlessness. Much better understanding. Sin is a rebellious, distrustful attitude towards God. Okay, it is rebellion and the breaking of the rules. Okay, that's the natural result of being in a distrustful, rebellious attitude and relationship with God. Okay, in the third verse, here in James 4, Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. And does this not imply the rebelliousness? I mean, they knew they were not supposed to go to the tree. Uh, Eve went anyway. It was a rebellious, distrustful attitude. And um, again, just thinking of kids, if you have a child and you say, do not play down by the railroad tracks. There are dangerous people that hang out around there. And you made a big deal with punishments if your child goes down there. Now, if your child is still going down to the railroad tracks, that is a rebellious attitude. That's a problem okay, that you have to deal with. That rebellion gets to the root of the sin problem. If your child, you tell your child to pull some weeds in the garden, they accidentally pull up a plant, okay, that's not sin. That's not a rebellious, distrustful attitude towards you as a, as a parent. And in fact, do you think Jesus ever was asked to weed the garden? Do you think he accidentally, as a child, maybe one time pulled up a real plant? Was that sin? No. Okay, that's not sin. We, we tend to think of sin in terms of perfection and these kinds of behavioral things. Uh, that's not sin. Jesus is a carpenter. If he was asked to cut something at a meter length, and we happen to have that piece of wood, and we measured it with the, all the technology we have down to the nanometer, would it have been exactly right? No. Is that sin? No. That's not a rebellious uh, kind of a thing. Okay, so we need to make a distinction here, and especially as we think about perfection, what does it really mean to be per- perfect? If this is sin, wouldn't perfection be more towards moving towards the true picture of God, being in a trusting relationship with God? So, as we go through what really happened at the tree, which is our best window, I think, into understanding sin, we can see that it started by a believed lie about God's character. God's not about a freedom. He's not entirely trustworthy. It started with a a lie about who God is and what happened naturally. Their love and trust in God was broken. And right away they see they're in the garden. They're not afraid of Satan. They're afraid of God. Okay, how switched around is that? Okay, so love and trust was broken. And then we see the natural result. Rebellious actions, fear, selfishness. Remember last time we talked about how Adam right away blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent and kind of implied it was God's fault for making the serpent in the first place. All right, so selfish actions and what we usually call sin. Okay, this is just the result. Sin happens in the mind. It has to happen in the mind first. And then that leads to actions. So as we see, what is the remedy then to the sin problem? If this is correct, 
Why is it so important then that we read in our first Bible study, eternal life is to know you, to know the truth about you, to know you as a friend, to know you in the person of Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. And Jesus would say, I finished the work, singular, you gave me to do. I revealed your character to the men and women you gave me. So the resolution to the sin problem begins with what is your picture of God? And as close as our picture of God is to Jesus Christ, okay, that is at the core of solving the sin problem in us. And then, of course, what do we read so much? Righteousness by faith. What does that mean? Well, we are right with God, just like Abraham, because we trust Him again. We see God in the person of Jesus Christ. We decide that's a God we can trust. We put our trust in Him. And that's all God asks, just like Abraham. Trust. Okay, and then... Down here, the rebellious actions. Well, now we can understand perhaps a verse like this in James, where he would say, what good is it for you to say that you have faith or you trust God if your actions do not prove it? Okay, the natural result of being in relationship with the true God, trusting Him, is that our behavior changes. Okay, but we don't work on the behavior. Okay, that's... Uh, it. it so to start here and to work on our actions and behavior, uh, that is a very discouraging process. Okay? We have to start up here by being in relationship with the true God as revealed by Jesus. So the wrong approach is the Pharisee approach. Okay? Their approach here, rather than starting with, uh, what's our picture of God? Are we really worshiping the true God? Remember Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. Okay? They did not have a loving, trusting relationship with God, even though they would have claimed that they had a loving, trusting relationship with God. And uh, so on the outside, they worked so hard on the law, the behavior, to do all the things that God had said. Okay, but that is just a dead end. If we work on perfection here by trying to uh, work on all of the external actions, okay, it, it only works if we begin at the core of the problem. And so Jesus' words to them, here I think are so significant. He said, How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of your cup and plate, while the inside is full of what you have gotten by violence and selfishness. Blind Pharisee, clean what is inside the cup first. Now we know what that means. It is, uh, have a true picture of God. Be in a trusting relationship. Clean the inside first, and then the outside will be clean too. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look fine on the outside, but are full of bones and decaying corpses on the inside. In the same way, on the outside, you appear good to everybody, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and sins. Isn't that incredible? You can appear good on the outside, but the inside... And these were the people, of course, that were so eager to silence the voice of Jesus that they had Him crucified and then ran home to keep the Sabbath. Okay, unthinkable. So, sin is something that happens in the mind. Now, uh, maybe again, coming back, uh, not to be too redundant on our meningitis example here, but if it starts with a believed lie about God's character, leading to broken love and trust, and then we have rebellious actions, we can see here that the ultimate problem with our analogy here with meningitis is we've got bacterial meningitis. Okay? But... The symptoms of headache, fever, and neck stiffness, yeah, you can treat those symptoms. You can get pain medications. Uh, you can get medications to reduce fever. But the root of the problem will be to treat the bacteria. 
Okay, Jesus is the antibiotic. And how does this work? Well, uh, a couple questions here that uh, um, now we get into some maybe difficult stuff, but can sin, if, if sin is a broken relationship, if sin is a distrustful, rebellious attitude towards God, is that something you can uh, transfer? Could I hand sin from one person to another? Could we put it on a table and beat it with a hammer? Um, you really can't transfer sin. Well, that is commonly how it's understood. Every sin was transferred onto Jesus on the cross. Uh, what does that mean? Can sin be punished? Um, well, how do you punish a broken relationship? How do you punish distrust? Um, well, we'll have to spend a lot of time on this. But to get to a difficult verse here, in Romans 3.25, we read about the death of Jesus, and Paul would say this was to demonstrate his righteousness. And if some of you here were last year, we spent a long time on this. What does that mean? To demonstrate his righteousness, his goodness, his trustworthiness. Okay, why did Jesus die? To demonstrate his righteousness. But notice, but in his forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, is it possible we have not really seen the full manifestation? I mean, um, separated from God, does that have a consequence? Well, Adam and Eve lived for a thousand years. Um, what is the, isn't God often described as He gives rain and sun on the righteous and on the wicked? He's described as holding back the winds of strife. Where do we really see the ultimate result of sin? Uh, was it not at the cross? And what does that mean? And uh, I'm still working on what that means. But I think in part, what we see at the cross is the inherent malignant nature of sin. So, familiar words here in Isaiah, describing prophetically what happened to Jesus. He suffered and endured great pain for us. But notice, but we thought his suffering was punishment from God, and many have thought that. But no, he was wounded and crushed because of our sins, or by our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. Now, how does this work? Uh, we just consider Jesus dying on a cross. What did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you given me up? Why have you forsaken me? And I think at the cross, of course, it's the clearest revelation of who our God is. It's the clearest revelation of God's character, God's goodness, God's love. But simultaneously, I think it is also the clearest picture we have of the malignant nature of sin. Okay, and so at the cross, it's just the perfect revelation of both sides. And we'll have to spend much more time about how did Jesus die and how his death reveals um, things of extreme importance to us about light and darkness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, the person of who you are revealed in Jesus. And uh, thank you that we can certainly put our trust in a God who would do the things that you did, say the things that you said on earth and ultimately die in the horrible way that you died. Please help us to uh, continually refine our picture of who you are. May we not be in rebellious, distrustful relationship with you, but may we be in a close, intimate friendship with you. Amen.